Well, good morning. We just got to sing about it, and we just got to hear about it in the scripture reading there, but our theme for Christmas this year, our theme for Advent as a church family is talking about that great reality that we just heard in the verses, that upon Jesus' arrival, he was symbolizing God with us. And Pastor Troy last week brought us through the beginning of the series on just walking through the passage that we heard read there in Matthew chapter 1 that talks about the prophecy from hundreds of years before that a virgin would give birth and that the child would be Emmanuel, God with us. And let me tell you something else. That that comes in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew 28, right at the end of that gospel, so we've got this passage at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew about God being with us in Jesus, and we could shrug at that and say, well, that must have been nice for the people who were alive during Jesus' time. He was God with us. But the last words of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, right after what's often called the Great Commission about go and make disciples of all nations, are the words of Jesus saying, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you think Matthew wanted to highlight the theme that God is with us? The beginning and the end of his gospel has that idea front and center. God is with us. And and I know this is something that because of Christmas time, we, we sort of get used to. We can end up shrugging our shoulders at a little bit. Um, just this last week, I was at Victoria Gardens, and there was a bunch of carolers set up in front of the, one of the stores, and so I stopped and listened to them for a while, and uh, they were singing a very Christian Christmas song, and I, I always wonder about that, because I'm like, I, I don't know, I don't know if they're believers, I don't know what they're thinking as they're singing these really deep words, like, oh, come all ye faithful, when they're singing, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. I don't know what are the thoughts of everybody who's listening. I don't know the thoughts of the carolers, but this is talking about the reality of Jesus. This is talking about the eternal son of God coming to dwell with us, to be God with us. But then it's like, as soon as that's done, we're off to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. (laughs) And so I think even for us as believers, and and some of you have, have been a Christian for a long time, it's easy for us to get very casual about these profound truths, the truth of God being with us because it's put right alongside figgy pudding, right? We, we just, we, we either got to be excited about both or casual about both. But I want you just to take this in for a minute. Think about what we're talking about here. God with us. If we were thinking about our lives and saying, what would we want most in the world? And we think, well, I want a college degree so that I can do well in life. Or I, I, I want a, you know, a spouse and some kids so that I can have a family around me. Or I want a home that I can sort of make my own. Or I want a little bit of expendable income so I can do some fun things. How would you like God being with you? That's greater than anything else. I'm going to guess for most of you here, that's why you're here on a Sunday morning, because you believe that God is real, and you believe that there's a possibility of you being connected to him. God with us is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And here's what we're going to do this morning, and then the two following Sundays as we lead up to our Advent celebration. We're going to go through three passages that actually aren't typically Christmas passages, They're passages, though, about the profound impact that happens when Jesus 
is present. And what we want to focus in on is if we're going to live in this new reality, not a casual reality, but a transformative reality that through Jesus, ever since Christmas, God is with us, we want to talk about how that transforming reality works itself out in our lives. And this morning, in the passage that we go through, the specific thing that we're going to talk about is how God being with us changes how we walk through times of trial and trouble. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 8, which is actually the chapter we'll be in for this week and the following two weeks. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. So read along with me if you have a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses up here on the screen for you to read along there. Luke 8, starting in verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you that we celebrate that you are with us and that you've demonstrated that through sending your son that first Christmas day. We pray that you lead us to live in light of that amazing reality, especially in times of trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do is I want us to be able to walk through, sort of inhabit the story that we just read through that probably some of you are familiar with and some of you it might have been a new story about Jesus calming the storm. And this is a story, there, there's four. In the Bible, there's four accounts of Jesus' life, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story that we just read in the gospel of Luke. And they all tell this story at relatively the same point in Jesus' life. He's been having a public presence for a little while now. He's gathered some disciples. He's done some teaching. In fact, earlier in Luke chapter 8, he did the famous parable of the sowers sowing the seeds and the different responses. He started to do some miracles, so some people are gathering around, and he has his disciples. He has at least the 12 disciples who are close to him, following him around. They've believed in Jesus at least to the point that they've been willing to make sacrifices to follow him. They know he's somebody important. But at this point, they're probably still wondering exactly who he is. So they're following him around. He does the teaching. He does the miracles. And then what we get in verse, chapter 8, verse 22, is that Jesus decides it's time for them to move. One day, Jesus says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And the lake talked about here is actually the Sea of Galilee. Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Um, And and just as a small note, we we don't know exactly the motivation here. The Gospels aren't 100% clear. Some people think it's because Jesus was tired, which would make sense. 
He'd done a lot of stuff, and it makes sense because he quickly fell asleep after they got into the boat. Um, But it's also possible that this was driven by mission, driven by the idea that Jesus was saying, we proclaimed the message here, let's go over to the other side of the lake and proclaim it there. They get into the boat, and verse 23 begins by saying, as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, Jesus' disciples had a number of different occupations, but several of them were fishermen. So I want you just to think about this for a second. Jesus falling asleep as they're sailing across the sea was probably not something that alarmed the disciples at all. There were times where they would have really not wanted Jesus to fall asleep in the middle of something. You got 5,000 people on a hillside that you need to feed. You got a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish. If at that point, Jesus had said, I'm going to go take a nap, they would have said, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. We can't handle this. We can't feed 5,000 people. You're not going anywhere. You're staying awake. But a bunch of fishermen on a boat, Jesus says, I'm going to go take a nap. They probably, of all times that they were with Jesus, they probably thought, we got this. We don't need Jesus with us right now. We got this. We're fishermen. We're experienced. Even those who weren't fishermen had probably spent a good amount of time out on the sea. This is no problem. Jesus can take a nap. We got this. Have you ever had a time where you thought, I don't need God. I got this. Have you ever had a time that there's been a sin or a habit that you've thought, all right, for a long time this was influencing me, but now I've kicked it, now I've defeated it, now I'm good, I don't need God's help from this point on out. Have you ever had a time where you thought with your finances, you know if there was a while where things were tight and where we really needed God to come through for us, but now we've got it, we don't really need God's help anymore. Maybe even with family things, you had times where there were strains and there was difficulties and gaps between members of the family and you were praying a lot about it, but then you just got to the point that you said, we don't need God anymore, we've got it covered. What I want to say is, beware of times in your life that there's an area where you think you don't need God. Beware of self-sufficiency. The the disciples, it would have been very normal in this case for them to say, we don't need Jesus for us to sail across the sea. They were about to find out they did. And God is able to end our self-sufficiency when we start to think we don't need him. And by the way, I use the term self-sufficiency. You know what the biblical term for self-sufficiency would be? Pride. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Beware of self-sufficiency. And it wouldn't have been crazy for the disciples to think, Jesus can take a nap. That's no problem. We've got it. But verse 23 goes on and says, a squall came down on the lake. And that word squall is the word for whirlwind. This was a sudden, severe storm, which the Sea of Galilee was typically calm But because of where it was placed and because of the mountains around it, when it had storms, they often were sudden. When they set out from one side of the Sea of Galilee, probably everything was fine and they thought it was going to be a smooth sailing, but a sudden squall, a sudden whirlwind came. And it goes on and says, so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And when they're in great danger, we read in verse 24, the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. The disciples are panicking. 
And I want you just to think for a second. Again, imagine this scenario. Imagine what's going on here. Do you think that as soon as the first sign of wind and difficulty came, the disciples panicked and woke up Jesus? No way. They've got this. They're fishermen. They're experienced. They can handle this. But when they got to the point of panic, they woke up Jesus. And that tells you just how severe the storm was. Um, th- this year for Thanksgiving, we traveled to Atlanta to get to visit some of my side of the family. And on the trip back, on the plane trip back, there was some turbulence on the plane. And it was enough that it was concerning. But it wasn't enough that we knew for sure that we should panic. It was sort of that in-between part. It's concerning. This is a little bit more than normal. Should we panic? When I was trying to figure out if I should panic, you know who I was watching? I was watching the flight attendants. No, not the kids. I would have panicked. (laughs) I don't know how you do this, Debbie. (laughs) I was looking at the flight attendants, and the flight attendants were calm and serene. Now, if the flight attendants had started running all over the place saying, we're going to crash, we're going to crash, we're going to crash, you know what time it would have been? Time to panic. These disciples have been through things like this before. They are panicked. That tells you that this is a true storm. Luke even says it back in verse 23. They were in great danger. And and I want to highlight this just to show the disciples are not making something up here. They aren't making up a problem that doesn't exist. This problem does exist. They are in a real storm. They are in real danger. And they wake Jesus up, which, by the way, I just think is a little bit funny that Jesus was sleeping through this. Um, This might even remind you of a story in the Old Testament where somebody else was sleeping through a storm. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might be thinking of Jonah right now. Jonah is sleeping through a storm. Jonah is the cause of the storm because he was running from God. Jesus is about to be the solution to the storm because it says he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. He caught up. Listen to that word. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. You know what it means to rebuke someone? It means basically to tell them, cut it out. Stop doing what you're doing. Jesus gets up, and I don't know if he was groggy, but when I wake up from a nap, I'm confused about where I am and who's talking to me and all that kind of stuff. They woke him up, Jesus, we're gonna drown. He gets up, gets the cobwebs out of his head and goes out and commands the wind and the waves to cut it out. And they do. Now, just take this in, because this is an amazing miracle that happens right here. But it's a miracle that I think even some of us that are familiar with it, we might not quite get how miraculous this is. Because he not only says that the wind stopped, he says that the waves stopped. Now, let's take this down to to a much smaller scale for a moment. Um, A lot of us in this room, not, not everybody surely, but a lot of us have given a kid a bath before. And you know what it's like when you're giving a kid a bath and they suddenly realize they're in water and it's awesome to be in water? So they start splashing all over the place and everything's getting wet and the water is going all over the place. And then you say, cut it out. And let's just say by a miracle, they do. They instantly cut it out. (laughs) They just stop, right? Mom, dad, I'll obey you, whatever you say. All right, you, you say, cut it out. They stop immediately. 
Does the water stop immediately? No way. Even in that small amount of water, even in that small tub, that water is going to be going back and forth for a while. Jesus gets up and tells the wind to cut it out and the wind stops blowing. And if all, that's all that had happened, probably the disciples would have seen that as miraculous. But there probably could have been a temptation for them to look at that and say, well, the storm came in quickly, it, it left quickly. There could have been something that they could have chalked it up to that. But it wasn't simply that the wind stopped, it's that instantly the sea was calm. There is no explanation for that apart from the miraculous. The waves are raging, the wind is blowing, a word from Jesus and the wind stops and the sea is calm. And then verse 25, Jesus asks a question. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. Now, in some ways, this can seem a little bit harsh. There was a real storm. They weren't making this up. They weren't crazy. And at the same time, Jesus asked them, where's your faith? And and let's try to get back to why he might be asking this. Um, Because the disciples at no point ever said, we don't believe. But they did demonstrate an emotion that in the Bible is usually the antithesis of faith. So just, it's not said overtly in the passage, but I think we can surmise this. What emotion were the disciples feeling when they went and woke up Jesus? Fear. fear, absolutely. They were experiencing fear. Throughout the Bible, fear is sort of the enemy of faith. Fear is what is going to squelch your faith. They come to Jesus in absolutely panicked fear and say, we're going to drown. When Jesus says, where is your faith? He's saying that because of their fear. Now, in some ways, I've probably already given away the answer to this question, but Do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? Yeah. Do not be, some form of do not be afraid, fear not, do not fear. Some version of that. Some people have counted and said that there's actually 365 times that that command is given in the Bible, which means you can get one of those day calendars that you just keep clipping it off. Another passage that says do not fear. So, So all of these commands, the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. Not every time... But many of the times in the Bible when, it's, when God's people are told, do not fear, that's followed by the reason not to fear. Do not fear because I am with you. Let me just show you some examples. All the way back in Genesis, God is speaking to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And in Genesis 26, 24, it says, that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, as Joshua is taken over from Moses and intimidated about the fact that he's supposed to lead the people into the promised land, God speaks to him and says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, speaking to the people of God in a time of trial, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Finally, Jeremiah 42, verse 11, speaking to the Israel, people of Israel about one of their enemies, he says, do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am 
with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And I think it's really important when Jesus says, where is your faith? Jesus is not saying, there was no storm. There was a storm. Now, let me just pause and and ask you right now. You know, the storm we're talking about here in this passage is obviously a literal storm. But sometimes we use storm terminology to talk about dark and difficult trials that we're facing in our lives. So let's just take that for a moment and let me ask you, what is your storm right now? And for some of you, it might take a minute. You might say, all right, let me think about it. And, and then you'll identify it. You'll say, oh, okay, my, my storm right now is that I'm trying to figure out things for college and I don't know where to go and I don't know where the money is going to come from. And I have a lot of stress. I have a lot of fear about it because storms produce fear. I have a lot of uncertainty. I, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to go with that. For some of you, your storm is, is largely financial because there's uncertainty with work, uncertainty with income. You're not sure if you're going to be able to keep your home. And so you're looking at that and you're saying, all right, that, that's my storm right now. The uncertainty going on with that and the fear of what will happen if we can't pay the bills. For some of you, the storm might have to do with your marriage or with a relationship that you're having a really hard time with right now. You're saying, are we ever going to be at a point where we see eye to eye and we're experiencing joy together? Is this friendship ever going to be mended? Are my kids ever going to come back? Are they going to call me? What's going to happen with this? There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. We have a lot of fear about our health. We have a lot of fear about relationships. We have a lot of fear about money. In fact, we, we are living in about the most safe and prosperous society that the world has ever known. And anxiety medications are being prescribed in record numbers. You can't get away from the fact that fear is the most primal emotion that we experience. And what I want you to know is that Jesus is not saying to you, why are you afraid there's no storm? There was a storm. It doesn't seem that he was saying to the disciples, why were you afraid there's no storm? But instead he was saying, why were you afraid? I was right here. Don't be afraid for I am with you. And what we all get to take in is that in many ways, throughout the Bible, what God is saying to us is the reason you don't have to be afraid is because of Christmas. The reason you don't have to be afraid is because the virgin is going to give birth and the child will be Emmanuel, will be God with us. And at the end of his life, he's going to say to all of us, surely I'm with you even to the very end of the age. Don't be afraid because God is with you. So, so let's, let's try to take this in though and say, all right, well, th- this is the first century. This is a story that happened. We weren't there. We're kind of imagining that we were, but, but, but we weren't there. We didn't take that in. Why is the story in the Bible? What does this mean for us today in the 21st century? Uh, and let me give you a warning about this story and then, then what I think is the truth about this story. The warning is this. It could be easy to read this story and say, I know what God is telling us in this story. God in this story is telling us, if Jesus is in your boat, smooth sailings ahead. If Jesus is in your boat, because he can calm every storm, you're not going to face any difficulty. And I want to warn you, that is not what God is saying to us through this passage. And we know that for at least two reasons. One is a big picture scriptural reason, and one is a reason right in this passage. Um, The number one reason why we know that God is not saying to us, if Jesus is in your boat, you're going to have smooth sailing, is because Jesus is no one's genie. 
When we approach God, we don't approach him as somebody that we can put into our pocket to bring out and solve problems that we have. We approach him as the Lord, as the one that we're bowing our knee to, as the one that we're trusting. So beware of the temptation to use Jesus as a genie or a rabbit's foot or some kind of good luck charm. That will not work. That's reason number one. But reason number two, why we know that's not the point of the passage, is because something that happened right in this passage. Let's think for a second about how the disciples even got into this storm. Whose idea was this trip across the sea? It wasn't the disciples' idea. This was Jesus' idea. He said, Jesus got them out of the storm. But in a very real way, we can say, well, wait a second, Jesus got them into the storm. This wasn't there. Sometimes we end up in a mess and we know I caused this mess. I got myself into this. But, but this is something that, that it, it, at the same time is, is profound, but also maybe even a little bit troubling. So we can look at our situation and say, all right, I, I'm in a storm right now. And I see in this passage, all right, if I'm in a storm, that's not because Jesus can't calm it. Jesus can do anything. Jesus is supreme over the entire creation. He speaks and wind stops. He speaks and waves are calmed. He can do anything. So if I'm in a storm, it's not because Jesus can't do anything about it, but that might even seem like that makes the problem worse because we say, well, if he could do something about it, then why am I in it? If he could fix it, why are we still in this financial position? If he could fix it, why are we still at odds with one another? If he could fix it, why am I still sick? If he could fix it, why don't I know what I'm supposed to do? And what I want to say is this is such a huge question. I, I certainly am not going to be able to give you a detailed, exhaustive answer. Um, I don't know the exact reason why you're in the storm that you're in right now. But I can give you some, some reasons that this, these storms typically happen, according to the Bible. Um, one reason why we face storms is because God has something in our lives that he's shaping us in. And the storm is part of that story. And a lot of us, we, we sort of don't want to acknowledge it because we know what we're saying, but we know that the good things that God has done in our lives and the good work that he's done in shaping us has largely happened in the storms. Sometimes you're in a storm, and I'm not even saying you're in the storm because God is punishing you, but you're in the storm because that is God's path to making you into the man or the woman that he desires you to be. Sometimes that's why you're in the storm. Um, sometimes you're in the storm, maybe not even quite for yourself to shape you, but to shape somebody else. Because God is going to put his power on display as you cling to Jesus in the storm and somebody else who's not yet sold on Jesus says, you know what? If they value him that much, he must be worth it. Sometimes God puts us into the storm just so that we and others can see his profound power to silence those waves in the end. He bolsters our faith. He bolsters the faith of others. But, but here's the thing. Even in all of that, I can't speak with authority and say, I know why you're in your storm and I know what God's going to do about it. I don't know what he's going to do about it, but here's what I do know for sure. I do know that if he still has you in that storm, it's not because he doesn't care. And the reason why we know that he cares is because of Christmas. Romans 8.32 says, God who did not withhold his one and only son from us, if he didn't hold him back, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? 
God, who works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, who will one day experience the treasure of heaven, who will one day experience eternal life because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. God, who didn't withhold his one and only son, but sent him to be born as a humble baby in a manger on that first Christmas, he won't hold back any good thing from us. If you're in the storm, it's not because God can't silence it. And if you're in the storm, it's not because God doesn't care. It's because God has some greater purpose and you're in the middle of the story and not at the end of the story yet. The thing we're supposed to get from this passage is not if Jesus is in your boat, it's gonna be smooth smooth sailing because sometimes he leads you into the storm. But maybe the thing that we're supposed to get is kind of similar to what the disciples got in verse 25. It says, in fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The foundational level, what we're all supposed to walk away from the story with, is profound awe and amazement at the power of Jesus. There is nothing that he can't handle. He speaks, and nature responds, which is that much more profound because we've all had times in our life where we've realized just how much we are at the mercy of nature. I remember a bunch of years ago when our oldest son was really young, he was probably about three years old, um, he and I were home and I'd brought him into the backyard and I'd set him up on a little table and he was going to do some coloring. So I had a whole bunch of sheets of paper and he had all his crayons and all his colored pencils and he was there and I kind of walked away for a little while and then I heard him yelling, which was weird because nobody else was home. And specifically, I heard him yelling, stop it probably three or four times, stop it, and then go, stop it. Thinking, all right, I gotta figure out what's going on here. I walk back over, there's still nobody else there except him. He was yelling, stop it, and do you know who he was yelling, stop it, at? Yeah, some of you guessed it, at the wind. (laughs) The wind was blowing his coloring pages all over the place, and he was deeply frustrated at the wind, so he started yelling at the wind, stop it. By the way, it didn't work. (laughs) He was only going to color if the wind let him color. Or when I was about 12 years old, one time my family went to the beach and I was out on the water and I was boogie boarding and having a good time. Um, but, but the tide was really severe that day. And so it actually, it brought me so far over that I was into the pier and underneath the pier. And, uh, and I, so I decided, all right, this, this is tough to get out of. So I'm just going to hold on to, to one of the barriers. I'm just going to hold on to this part of the pier until the waves die down enough that I can go back inside. By the way, the funny thing is, I wasn't scared about this. My mom was really scared about this. She sent the lifeguard out to come get me, which I was kind of mad and embarrassed about. Um, and this was why, this was my reasoning. I said, I wasn't scared. I was just going to hold on until the waves let me go back. Just think about that for a second. I'm going to go back when the ocean lets me. There are times where we are made profoundly aware we are at the mercy of nature. And whether it's people who die climbing Mount Everest, whether it's people who die of thirst in the desert, whether it's high up on a mountain, whether it's in the ocean, we are at the mercy of nature. And nature is at the mercy of Jesus. Jesus speaks and the wind responds. And this is that much more amazing because when when you take in the scope of the universe and realize there's nothing in the universe that is outside of his control. 
Sometimes on Thanksgiving week, we've gone out to Joshua Tree just so that we can be there at night and see the stars. And you can see them so much more clearly out there than with all the lights here. And so we'll just lay down and we'll look at the stars. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? 10 to the 20th power. And if you don't know what that means, that means 10 with 20 zeros after it. That means when you're at Joshua Tree gazing up at the stars, are you seeing all the stars? Not remotely. You're seeing a small fraction of the stars. And none of those stars is where it is without God deciding where it's going to be. You ever thought about the ocean? Even in this passage, talking about the sea. You know how many gallons of water are in the ocean? 352 quintillion. Once again, 352 with 18 zeros after it. And in the book of Job, God says to Job, I'm the one that tells the ocean, this far your proud waves go, and then they stop. God is supreme over all creation. We are at the nature of mercy, we are at the mercy of nature, and nature is at the mercy of Jesus. Maybe the big thing we're supposed to walk away from this passage is just realizing God is stronger than the storm that you're in. And I remember a time about five years ago when I, I was overwhelmed by some things that were going on and I was discouraged and I just, I wasn't seeing a path out of the different trials and the different fears that I had. And there was one day where I got to go to the ocean and just spend a day there. I was thinking and I was praying and I was burdened by all the things that I just didn't see a way out of. And I, I don't know why this happened other than that God just wanted me to think this, but I looked out at the ocean and immediately I thought of another storm story of Jesus, I thought of the story of him walking on the water. And it was as if I was looking out at the ocean and just sort of imagining him walking on top of the water. And those of you who know me, you know, this isn't really characteristic of me, what happened next. But I started laughing. And it wasn't because the thought of Jesus walking on the water was funny. That, that's not funny. The reason I was laughing is because I was imagining how silly it was to feel overwhelmed by this, these things when Jesus can literally walk on the water. It was as if I'm imagining he's walking across the water and then he just sort of looks over at me and says, I think I can handle it. I think I can handle your marriage difficulties. I think I can handle your financial quandary. I think I can handle your health problems. I think I can handle the reconciliation that needs to happen. If I can walk on the water, I think I can handle it. If I can calm the storm, I think I can handle it. If I can set the stars in place, I think I can handle it. If I can fill the ocean, I think I can handle it. What I want to invite you to do this morning is I don't want to invite you to look away from the trial that you're facing, I want to invite you to look right into it. You don't have to ignore your trial to get relief. And for some of you, the trial that you're going through, it may be a big one. There might be some of us that were like, yeah, I do have some challenges, but some of you, it is a really big storm right now. And what I want to invite you to do is don't pretend the storm's not there. Look right at that storm and remind yourself that Jesus is stronger than the storm. Remind yourself that if Jesus has brought you into this storm, it is only for your good and he'll use it for his glory and for your good. Remind yourself that while the storm is strong, the one who is with you is stronger. And the band is going to come out in a moment and what we're going to get to do is we're going to get to respond to the God of all creation with worship.
We're going to get to take an opportunity to say, you know what, let's look away from all of the inferior solutions that we come up with to our problems and let's look to Jesus. Let's remember the one who's powerful enough to calm the storm and who loves, loves us enough to die for our sins. We're going to get a chance to bring our hearts to him in worship. And even during the time of worship, I invite you again, don't ignore your storm. Bring your storm to this time of worship. And even with that, as we get ready for this time of worship, um, we're, we're going to have, even before this time of worship, we're going to have an opportunity to experience one of the greatest symbols of the power of Jesus, and that's through a baptism. In a moment, you're going to see a video that will walk us through the story of somebody who's going to be baptized right afterwards. And as we get this experience, what we get to be reminded of is that as powerful as it is for Jesus to calm a storm, it's even more powerful that he is able to change our hearts and bring us from life to death, bring us from judgment to the mercy of God. So as we prepare for this baptism, take a moment and watch this video and be reminded of God's power to bring hope and change into any situation. <laughs> 